as we continue our study of the life of Moses and really the the next step in the journey of the nation of Israel. So if you remember last time in Exodus chapter 2, we looked at the life of Moses and we saw that he was born. In the last chapter, he's born. um, And then during that time, he actually flees um, Egypt. He was raised as the son of Pharaoh, uh, excuse me, the, the grandson of Pharaoh. He was trained in some of the highest institutes of learning in his day. And then he went out and he murdered someone. He did it for what he would call righteous reasons, but after he murdered someone, uh, his own people, the Hebrews, um, they hated him. They said, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill us too? And so uh, when the Pharaoh, his uh, grandpa, essentially, found out that he was a murderer and he had murdered one of the taskmasters that had been placed over the Hebrew people, he actually um, was very angry. And so because of that, Moses, knowing his sin had been found out, fleed to the wilderness. And he flees all the way across the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt over to a place called Midian which is uh, land on the other side of the Dead Sea. So he went as far as he humanly could to get away from the consequences of his sin. So that's our context today. If you remember last time, uh, Moses had gone to this place and he meets uh, these ladies, seven daughters of the priest of Midian. And when they're there, he helps them get water out of the well and then they go home, and, they, and their dad is like, Why, how did you get home so soon from watering the livestock? And they all say, this Egyptian man helped us. And he asked very quickly, well, why isn't he with you? Why didn't you bring him home? This is an upstanding gentleman. Why wouldn't you bring him to the house? And so they go call for him, and he comes home. And essentially through this, he gets to marry one of the daughters of Rule, or his other name is Jethro, uh, which I love, by the way. I can relate with the name Jethro. Um, and not to be confused with Jethro Tull. But they get married, and then he starts a family. And this once Egyptian ruler, uh, essentially the heir to the Egyptian throne, is now what Egyptians hate. He's a shepherd. He's in the middle of nowhere, and he's guarding his father's sheep. And that is where the Lord calls him. I love this because God's getting ready to stir up his comfortable life. And many times what we don't like is for God to interrupt our comfortable lives. I know I don't. I like to know what's coming next. I like to be in control of things. And yet, What God does is he sets Moses in a family. He gives him a wife. He gives him children. And as he's doing all this, and Moses has learned to be content, to work with his hands, to provide for his family, it's at that point that the Lord goes, okay, you're comfortable enough. Let's move on. And any good shepherd doesn't leave his sheep in the same spot for very long because they'll eat the grass all the way to the ground and make it bald. And then they'll be eating stuff that's surrounded by their own feces. Uh, They'll be eating the ground that's covered in their excrement and their urine. And so the Lord, in his wisdom, says, okay, you've been grazing here long enough. Time for you to do something else. I've got a greater purpose for you than just your family. And I think he does this for you and I, by the way. 
He sets us in families. He gives us a place to be a steward over. And then he says, I've got a piece for you of my plan that's bigger than just what's going on in your four walls. And I want to use you to be, do mighty things that only I can do. That's what he's going to do in Moses' life. And so chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb. Now some of your translations might say Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And so the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but this bush was not consumed. So then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was very afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry. And they're crying out, of course, because of their taskmasters. And I know their sorrow. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to give them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and with honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Termites. Because you have to make that joke as a pastor, I'm sorry. <laughs> now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. So I've seen their oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. I feel like that's redundant, but I think the Lord's trying to make a point. They were oppressed. And so, come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so here Moses is, he's content. He's dwelling by himself. He's no longer in a place of prominence. He's by himself. He's in obscurity. And many people would prefer to be in the limelight. In today's day and age, if you can't be in the limelight, you start to create a limelight. You make a social media profile or you start posting pictures of yourself and we're kind of narcissistic as a culture. But Moses didn't want to be around people. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I think a lot of people in Iron County are like this. I think we can relate to Moses. Like I don't live out in the middle of nowhere because I want to be close to people. You know, we've been social distancing since it, before it was popular. Um, but the reality is, Moses, here he is, he's social distancing. He's distanced himself, of course, for different reasons. He's done it because he's hiding, because he sinned, and he's essentially a vagabond. He's, he's someone that is up for, he's probably got wanted posters up about him in Egypt. And yet, what we find is that he's done what Paul writes about 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, it says, We urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside the faith, and that you may lack no good thing. Now, as believers, by the way, this is God's will for our lives, that we aspire to live a quiet life, uh, get your nose out of other people's business, and, and live a godly life. Work with your hands. Do what's in front of you. Don't be nosy Nancy, that you may walk properly among those who are outside the faith. You could have a good testimony. So here we have Moses. He's content. He's what every person is searching for, contentment. And then verse 2 through 6, the Lord in the midst of this contentment, he appears to Moses and he gets his attention. How does he get his attention? He sets a, a bush on fire. Now, this isn't the beautiful burning bush that turns red at just the right time that you've planted in front of your house. This is a bush that is literally on fire, except this bush is different than most bushes that burn. It's not being consumed. And that's the Lord. The Lord is a consuming fire, and yet those who are consumed by him and doing his business, he promises that we'll be on fire but not consumed. I think a lot of people are afraid to give their lives to the Lord because, well, it's going to take up my whole life. Well, yeah. He said, if anybody's going to follow after me, but they must lay down their life, actually give it up so that he could live through us. But when he's living through us, by the way, if you're not walking with Jesus right now, your life's being consumed anyway. <laughs> Whether or not you, you realize it, it's being consumed by the things that you do, the things that you partake in. I don't know about you guys, but I get home and I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. My eyes hurt. My body's sore. And it's not just because I'm middle-aged. It's not just because I'm out of shape. Uh, our bodies are wearing out. And yet what God tells us through his word is that he is a consuming fire, but those who are consumed with his business will be renewed day by day. His Holy Spirit poured into us like rivers of living water, and then they pour forth from us, is what Jesus said. That what we give ourselves to when we lay down our lives and pick up his and let him live through us is actually life-giving, not life-taking. And so the attention-getter is that there's this, this bush on fire, and of course, he sees it, and he's just like us. We see a car on fire, we're going to turn around and look. We see a house on fire, we're going to be gawking. We see the sirens, I wonder what's going on. I'm going to get on Facebook and find out what's going on in Iron County. You know, I, I have to know. And so he turns to, to the side, just like any good redneck would if he saw flames, and he sees a bush on fire, but it's not being consumed. So he doesn't just turn to look, he starts to go towards. And as he goes towards, it's just like a moth to flame. The Lord says, stop. Why does he say stop? He says, take off your shoes. Why would he say take off your shoes? If I'm going to a fire, I'm leaving my shoes on in case I got to get away from it. He says, take off your shoes because the ground you're pursuing is holy ground. It's, it's pure. Now, is it pure because of the, the dirt that's there? No. It's pure because of who is there. 
God himself has manifested himself to Moses in a bush, a very common thing. He's done a new thing and set it on fire, and he's revealing himself to Moses in, in many ways. He says, remove your sandals. Why? Because you cannot approach God filthy. You'll be consumed. So what he says is, I'm going to tell you what you need to do to, to come towards me. I want you to take off your shoes. He's, he's telling him this graciously because what does Moses do? He is a shepherd. So guess what he's been stepping in? Caca. Poopy. Feces. Sorry, I can't stop saying different words for that. I blame my five-year-old. He likes to say the P-O-O-P word anytime he gets a chance. It makes him so happy. Apparently, he got that from me. But in John chapter 13, what we see is that the Old Testament says, get clean and then approach me. Follow rules and then approach me. But in John chapter 13, Jesus did something different with his disciples. He invited them to the table and then they came. They didn't take off their shoes because they were rednecks just like me. And then when they showed up, Jesus girded himself with a towel and he said, I'm going to wash you. He washes what though? Their feet. Because the way that we walk and where we go, our feet get dirty. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come and walk with me. But he, Old Testament says, prepare your feet. The New Testament, Jesus says, I'll prepare your feet. You don't have to clean yourselves. I'm going to do it. He took the form of a bondservant, a slave. The lowest slave in a house is the one that literally was a doormat. They would, they would sit by the door, they would take off your shoes, imagine that job, and then they would wash your feet with their own hands. And Jesus, the Son of God, the King of all kings, the, the creator of heaven and earth, the Holy One of Israel, bows down low, puts a towel around himself, and washes fishermen and zealots and tax collectors' feet. And then he feeds them. hope he washed his hands. But then what we have here is him saying, prepare yourselves. And so verse 1 through 10, we also see in verse 6 that Moses hides his face. He takes off his shoes, he hears the voice of God, and then he hides his face. Why? Sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 through 8 says that, that after the fall, Adam and Eve did what? They, they realized, they noticed, their eyes were open, not to God, but they were actually open to their own condition. And they realized that having broken the one command God gave them, eating the fruit, they were naked. They were ashamed. Shame, by the way, is always us feeling the weight of our sin and then covering ourselves so that we can hide from God. The problem is that we can't hide from God. And in John chapter 3... In verse 17, it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who condemns, excuse me, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
And this is what condemns them. This is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world. Picture this. Moses is shepherding, and then the light comes into the world in the form of a consuming fire that doesn't consume the bush. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. That's why Moses is covering his face. He loves darkness rather than light. Why? Because his deeds were evil. That's what end of verse 19 says. Man loves darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Maybe that's you today. You prefer to hide in the shadows because you know that your deeds are evil. But when you know that your deeds are evil, you're in a good spot because now you're looking for a way to be cleansed of your deeds. And I'm here to tell you today, Jesus is that cleansing agent. He spilled his blood to deal with the evil. So now, verse 20, everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But look at this, verse 21. He who does the truth comes to the light, knowing their deeds are evil, and then God deals with with it, that they may be done in God, that his deeds may be clearly seen. Just walk out and say, I'm owning it. Here I am. So when God speaks to him from, from the bush, he says, Moses, Moses. He has to say his name twice. Maybe because Moses was hard of hearing. And then Moses says what? Here I am. Here I am. Deal with it. Here I am. All of me. I'm willing, but I'm dirty. I'm a shepherd. And so as he says this, he he walks into face-to-face contact with God. God says, prepare yourself, take off your shoes. And then he covers his face And then the Lord doesn't say, don't cover your face. The Lord continues to speak to him because he loves him. He wants to have contact, but he's got a greater plan. It's not even about Moses at this point. Verse 11, wherever I was. But Moses said to God, who am I? Now, he's not asking the existential question that many philosophers ask today. Who am I? What's my gender? He's not asking those questions. He's saying, who am I? Moses knows exactly who he is. Moses knows he's a shepherd. Oh, you want me to go to speak to the Egyptians? They hate my kind. Number one, I murdered one of them. They don't like me for that. And number two, I'm a shepherd. They despise shepherds. I'm like the worst spokesman you could pick. But God says, excuse me, Moses says to him, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I'm one guy. I'm a sinful guy and I'm a shepherd guy. So he said, I will certainly be with you. Who am I? Doesn't matter who you are. It's about who I am. It's about who's with you. It's about who's going to take you there. He says, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When, not if, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, just you, just the sinner, just the shepherd, when you've brought the people out of Egypt, my people, you shall serve God on this mountain. Where is he at? Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. Where is Moses going to get the Ten Commandments? Mount Sinai. What's one of those commandments? Thou shalt not murder. 
Moses will be clear on that by that point. He'll be fully aware, but he'll be cleansed because he'll be with God. And Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says what? If God is for me, then who can be against me? And the answer, by the way, it's a rhetorical question, nothing, no one, no how, nothing. The more no's I can say, the better. Not circumstances, not people, not whatever. So then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So the first question is, Who am I? And, and God answered that. God's response, it doesn't matter who you are. And the sign I'll give you is that when these things, things come to pass, you'll worship me on this mountain. But the second question is not, who am I? It's, who are you? <laughs> okay, so you want me to serve you, but who are you? And he's not asking, by the way, for his name. He's asking, what can I tell them about you? What is your character? What are you like? See, the Israelites are in a place called Egypt, and they worship animals. They worship the Nile River. They worship creation. They worship their leader, the Pharaoh. He was to be some sort of god. They, they knew about worship. They were not atheists of any kind. What they were is very, very religious. I think we can relate to that. We live in a nation of very, very religious people. But the reality is, he's saying, who are you? Which makes me think of the passage when Jesus was asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Well, he says, who should I say you are when they ask me? He says, the, he says what do I say when the children of Israel say, and they say to me, the God of, sorry, let me, Start over verse 13. Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? They're not asking what is his name. They're asking what his character is. What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Which, by the way, doesn't seem like an answer. (laughs) I am who I am. There was a song, I am whatever you say I am. If I wasn't, I don't remember who sings that. It probably goes downhill from there. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So the the phrase there, I am, is the ever-present one. So Old Testament, the covenant name of God is what he's saying here. Uh, sometimes you'll see it as YHVH because they took the, the, uh, the vowels out of there because they thought the, the name of God is too holy. We can't write it. We're too sinful. And so they wrote YHVH. So we've transliterated that from the original language into our language. Sometimes you've heard it Yahweh. Sometimes you've heard it Yehovah or Jehovah. The name. This is the name of God, the character of God. And the idea is, it's in the ever-present term. So, I am. And since he exists out of time, he's not saying, I am right now. He's saying, I was before the foundation of the earth. I was, old uh, before, past tense. But then at the same time, he is, I am. 
right now, in this moment, the moment for Moses, the moment for you and I right now. And then in the future, I will be. I always have been. I always will be. I am right now. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we're inside of time, and yet God is outside of time. He doesn't exist just in this moment. He always will exist. He always has existed. And so with that being the case, I wanted to take a moment and look at Jehovah. Old Testament names. And you'll see this in your Bible many times. You'll see the name of the Lord will be the Lord. And Lord will be in all capitals. Sometimes the first one is capital L, full size. And then O-R-D is usually capitalized, but it's smaller so that it's not confusing. But that name Jehovah comes up over and over in the Old Testament. He's everything that we need. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, our healer, the Lord who heals. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner, the Lord, he is our banner. Jehovah Mekadesh, the Lord who sanctifies. So he's not only Yeshua, the God who saves, but he's also uh, Jehovah Mekadesh, the Lord who then cleanses us as we are being saved. Uh, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, he is our peace, the King of peace, Jerusalem, uh, the city of peace. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, he is our righteousness which makes more sense when you read Isaiah where it says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags because the Lord, he is our righteous one, but he also makes us righteous. But when it comes to our account of righteousness, he deposited every bit of righteousness we have to give. Jehovah Rohi, the Lord, our shepherd. Jehovah Shema'ah, the Lord is there, the present one. I will be with you, Emmanuel. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies, who's on our side. And so, I love this, but let's look at the New Testament and see what Jesus said. Because we just called God, right? He says, I am who I am. Tell the Israelites that I am has sent you. So Jesus comes on the scene, and he told everybody, I am God. If you ever come across somebody that says, well, he never said he was God, he's just a good teacher. Well, then he was a liar, and he's not a good teacher, because he said very clearly, I am God. And one of the ways he did that was in John. John writes down all the seven I am statements of Jesus. John chapter 6, I am the bread of life, the provision as well as the sustaining power of bread seen in Jesus. He's the bread. I am the light of the world, John chapter 8. We just talked about what the light does. It exposes sin so that we can be healed of it and forgiven when we confess. John chapter 10, I am the gate. The only way to the Father is through one place, through the gate of the sheep pen. If you're not one of his sheep, guess what you'll do to get in? You'll go over the wall. That's what the wolves do, by the way, to take the sheep out as plunder. John chapter 10, verse 11 through 14, I am the good shepherd. We just talked about that. 
Uh, John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He's the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me, the way. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 1 through 5, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. And unless you abide in the vine, you cannot bear any good fruit. You, You can produce nothing unless you're tied into the vine. And so I love this, Jesus, all over the Old Testament. So, he's also, I would say, from this passage, the God who answers questions, but does not have to. He's, he's God. He's speaking to Moses, and Moses is questioning him. Now, many of you have children, and you've told them to do things, and when they ask you why, it drives you insane. Or is that only me? Make your bed. Why? Go to bed. Why? Clean your room. Why? And as a finite being, you know what my answer wants to be? Because uh, I said so, and I'm dad, and deal with that. But I want you to notice here, the Lord doesn't speak to Moses that way. He actually suffers long. And answering the why questions can sometimes be very difficult because you don't have, ain't nobody got time for that. But God makes time to answer Moses' questions. Who are you, Moses says. <laughs> well, obviously, I'm the God who's speaking to you. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac and Jacob. And he's not ashamed to be called by their names. And if you were with us during the study in Genesis, there was plenty of reason to be ashamed to be called by the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were not great guys. Verse 16 and 17, I'm the God who sees, hears, and knows. I've seen the oppression. I've heard your cries. I know what you're going through, and I'm going to deliver you from these circumstances into a land that's full of space and milk and honey. I'm the God, verse 18 through 20, who's going to strike down those who are oppressing you right now. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. And guess what? Verse 21 and 22 says, I'm going to plunder them and give you all their stuff. That's what he says. I'm not just going to deliver you. I'm going to send you out full with everything you need because I'm God, your provider. So chapter four, but what if they don't believe me? (laughs) Who am I? Who are you? But what if these people you're sending me to don't believe me? (laughs) Man, the Lord is patient. Moses goes from clarifying what his mission is, and now he's questioning God. By the way, God allows us to question him, but I think we need to be careful how far we take that. Because not only do we question his plan, many times we start to question his motives, his ability, and we become like the serpent in the garden. Did God really say... And then we're in dangerous grounds. But verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, It's a rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. And so he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. 
and Moses fled from it, as I would have done the same. Uh, Cast your rod on the ground. Cast your staff on the ground. It starts slithering and hissing at me. I'm going to jump up and freak out because I do not like snakes. And then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. By the way, at this point, I would have questioned. I don't like snakes and I don't want to touch one. And he reached out his hand and he caught it and it became a rod in his hand again. He says, I do this that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. I'm going to confirm your calling by the signs. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, put your hand in your bosom. I believe what he's saying here is, put your hand inside of your cloak. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous, white as snow. So he had leprosy. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like all of his other flesh. And then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river, pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become dry, excuse me, blood on the dry land. And so God is patient with Moses, and he's not required, by the way, to prove himself to the Israelites. He's not required to prove himself to Moses. He doesn't have to prove himself to the Egyptian people, but he's willing. And I love this about our God. Signs only point to, by the way, miraculous signs, they only point to the one who sent Moses. This isn't some sort of power that Moses has. But these signs are not meant to save the people, but only to confirm that Moses is the one that he sent to save them. He's confirming the calling. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 41, Jesus speaking to the teachers and the Pharisees of the day, he said to them after they they said, we want to see a sign from you. They demanded one of Jesus. And Jesus said very non-subtly, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with the generation, with this generation, and condemn it, because they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here now. (laughs) So the sign was the prophet Jonah, and it was to say, hey, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for three days, and I'm going to rise again. And you're going to see that and have the choice of whether or not to believe it. But when we question God, we need to be careful. We need to remember that his ways are not our ways. We would not have picked Moses to be our spokesman. But what I want to read is in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, 
Speaking of God's wisdom, verse 22 says this, Jews request a sign, and we just read that in Matthew 12, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ and him crucified. To the Jews, this is a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's wisdom is wiser than ours. God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. And if you remember the story of Peter, Peter questioned God, right? That doesn't mean that he couldn't be saved. It just meant that he was struggling. And so at that time when he questioned God, God had just asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're Christ. You're the son of the living God. And right after that, he said, man, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. This comes directly from God. You couldn't know this unless God revealed it to you. And Peter's feeling pretty stout about himself. And then Right after that, Jesus begins to reveal the plan of salvation is going to come through his death. I'm going to be handed over to sinners. I'm going to be judged by evil and wicked rulers. And then I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to die. And Peter, feeling pretty good about himself, rebukes Jesus and says, that can't possibly be the plan. Uh, Not so, Lord, to say, you're my Lord, but I, I don't think this is a good idea. And then he says to him famously, get behind me, Satan, which had to hurt Peter. But Moses is really doing the same thing here. Could this possibly be the plan of salvation? To, to send me, of all people, into Egypt? This is a death sentence for me. I'm wanted for murder there. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, He says, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to me, but I am slow of speech and I'm slow of tongue. Many scholars believe that he actually had a speech impediment. So not only is he not a good candidate for a spokesperson, but he also has a speech impediment. So he keeps going and he's giving excuses. This can't be what I'm called to, God, because I'm a murderer, I'm a shepherd, I'm a sinner, and I don't speak well. I'm not eloquent. So the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, and the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the great I am, the Lord, didn't I make you? Don't I make man to speak and not speak? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth. He says, who am I at the beginning? He says, doesn't matter who you are, I will be with you. And then he says, at the end, I can't speak. And the Lord says, I will be with your voice. I'll make your voice firm. I will teach you what to say. By the way, this is the same God that says this to the apostles. He says, don't be worried when you're drugged before judges and juries, when you have to speak before rulers. For in that day when you need to speak, I'll give you the words and I will be with your voice. But he said, oh, my Lord, send by the hand of whomever else, send anyone else but me. Which, by the way, 
When we say Lord and then say no, we're really saying you're not Lord. You're my Lord. Well, then go do this. Am not really feeling it today. (laughs) So is he Lord or not? Now, I think the Lord is very gracious with Moses, but look at verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Dangerous spot. He says, I'm not gifted. I'm not able. God says, I know your abilities. And by the way, I know your inabilities. But God doesn't call us to do the things that we can do easily, naturally, by ourselves. He only calls us to do what only he can enable us to do. And to finish that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many of you that are, are mighty, not many are noble, but you are called. He says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Life verse. By the way, if God chose you and he's called you, he just called you foolish. But this is a badge of honor because God chooses and has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. He's chosen the base or the normal or the mediocre things of the world and the things which are despised even. This is good news, folks. He's chosen the despised things of the world and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory not in himself, but in the Lord. All of the glory that we can bring in this life that comes from our lives can only come from the Lord. That is the glory that's lasting. So Moses is counseling God. And verse 14 says that he goes on to say, after his anger is kindled against Moses, God says, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he's also coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. Here's a 10-point plan for how you can have a bureaucracy. No longer can I just speak to you and you speak to the people. Since you've told me no, now there's going to be all this red tape. I'm going to tell you what to say, and then you're going to pay telephone and tell Aaron what to say, and then he's going to speak to the people. I guess if you can't speak, you can talk to your brother. It sounds like God's giving a, a, a plan that's permissible, but not his best. There's going to be other steps involved. He says, so he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take his rod in your hand, excuse me, you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. And so Moses' presumption to counsel God kindles God's anger, and then he'll get God's, what I would call, permissive will instead of his perfect will. What do I mean by that? 
Well, in Romans, in chapter 12, Paul writes to the Romans and he says, I beg you, Romans, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind for this purpose, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. But my question for you would be, if we balk at God's perfect will, does that mean that his will will not get done? And I would say to you, no, we're not that powerful. But that, that doesn't mean that God's will won't get harder for us. Because now, in order to speak to the Israelites and deliver them, there's another person involved. And you and I both know that the more people that get involved, the more possibilities for problems. That doesn't mean God won't get his will done, but it does mean that there might be some more bumps in the road. And I say that to you because when we pray and we say, I'm yours, Lord, we have the opportunity to be direct about our prayers. But when we're directing God, instead of being directed by God, we can create problems. And why do I say that? Because God's permissive will usually has consequences that God was trying to avoid. Because in Exodus chapter 32, God's going to take Moses off the mountain And as Moses has been on the mountain for 40 days, he's going to come down with the two stone tablets. And he's going to come down to the children of Israel. And all of a sudden, he's going to notice that the other leader that he left the Israelites with are worshiping what? A golden calf. And he's going to go, Aaron, what are you doing? Aaron's been given authority, right? Aaron, what are you doing? I don't know. They gave me their golden earrings. I melted them and a calf popped out. And so I said, this is your God, worship him. Because 40 days was impatience for the Israelites. But because he became a leader, instead of Moses being the only leader, Aaron led them like he had seen them led in Egypt. Because there they worshiped calves and living things and rivers and created things instead of the creator. So Aaron had the charisma to communicate. The people were willing to follow him, but he didn't have the character to lead with integrity. Someone got put in. So if you don't accept your calling in the body of Christ or in your community or in your home, God will find somebody else to lead. But many times it will be second best. Some homes might be led spiritually more so by the wife, but God has called the husband to lead. And so if the wife is leading, there will be blessing attached to that. But statistics show that if the the husband will lead the home, most of the time, the percentage is just through the roof. The whole family many times will be saved just because of the man's influence that's God-given. It's God's design. So what has God called you to? Stop begging him or giving excuses and begging him to, to let you do something else instead. There will be blessing attached to simply trusting, obeying. It will be simpler, actually. How many of us would love to have simpler lives? I know I would. Every day. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. So, Father, 
I truly believe that you are calling us out of bondage, just like you did the Egyptians, just like you did the Israelites from the Egyptians. Lord, many of us have walked with you for years, and we are comfortable, and we don't want to be uncomfortable. So, Father, I pray that despite the fact that we've grown comfortable, would you stir us up anyway? Help us to stop giving excuses. Help us to stop trying to counsel you or redirect you. Lord, we want you to be Lord of all. We want to be directed by you so that life can get simpler, so that we can be more productive as your disciples and your followers. And so, Father, I pray, help us. Help us to simplify. Help us to get really good at hearing your voice, to be consumed without being consumed, to be on fire with, for you without being consumed, to be simply obedient, and to get you all the glory. So, Father, we thank you for this word from Moses. We thank you for your word that is inspired. We thank you for your call, your will for our lives. Help us to walk in obedience simply. In Jesus' name, amen.